this episode of With Maze and Mel, we lay the foundation for how we have learned to live our lives the way that we do and how our family navigated the journey through a difficult diagnosis. Today, we'll talk about Mallory's story and what she went through before I, Maisie, even entered the picture and how she sort of forged the path for future kids with um, microvillus inclusion disease. Uh, we are not medical professionals by any means. We are just here to tell our story. So please make sure you consult with your provider before making any changes to your own care. And thanks for listening. So before we get started, I feel like it's important to note that this is all that Mallory and I have known for our whole life. And I feel like there isn't um, enough discussion around the differences between people who are born with their illness or disability and those who have acquired it or been diagnosed later in life. And both have a very different sort of social emotional path. Um, at least that we've found. So we don't want people to think that we haven't had our rough patches because we definitely have, and we'll talk about those as we go. But we also want to recognize that we know our story looks different than other people's might. And we just want to acknowledge that everyone's stories are valid, even if it's completely different than what we talk about. We have grown up with this illness, both of us, and we didn't really have a choice but to make it a part of our lives. Um, but we wanted to make sure that it was never our whole life. So today we're going to talk more about our medical journey, specifically Mallory's, and how our experiences were different and sort of laid a foundation for how we live our lives today and some of the elements and players that um, really had an impact on who we are as people. So all of that being said, let's get started. So, Mallory, today is about you because you came Yay. first. Awesome. So, um, just sort of tell me and us about your journey when you were diagnosed, how they knew, and how you went from there. Sure. Yeah. So, this is so weird. You know, I, I speak in front of a bunch of people and then we do this and I get a little bit nervous. So, I feel like we'll, we'll get into the flow, um, so much pressure. So I, first of all, want to say that, you know, I was a baby. I don't remember any of this. And, you know, I think as our parents listen to this, you know, they can fact check along the way. And if there's anything that needs to be, you know, corrected or, you know, whatever, we can make sure that that happens. But, you know, I think the biggest, the biggest part of this is, what mom and dad really went through and what I think is so crazy Maisie is that mom was your age when she had me and and did all this and you know I think seeing where we're at in our lives now like I just literally cannot I can't even imagine I can't even fathom like I mean as you all know I'm a dog mom there are no human young people ever to be in this home that are ours um, and so I just have such respect for people who go to the ends of the earth to find out, you know, what is going on with their, their kids and how their world must be turned so upside down. So, um, I was born in 1985. It was a Tuesday in May, uh, May 28th. It often falls on Memorial Day weekend, which is very nice. And I was 
nor normal. I hate that term, but I mean, my mom, our mom had a typical birth experience. I was of average weight. Um, everything was, was pretty on, on par. Um, and it wasn't until a little bit later that I started getting really sick. And for those who don't know, the symptoms of uh, microvillus infusion disease are vomiting, diarrhea, like basically just severe, severe dehydration. And so babies who are born with it are often diagnosed with failure to thrive um, and don't, you know, they never have a chance to diagnose it at this point. And so that was what was happening. And, and I was born in New Hampshire. Um, so I don't really know what went on at this time. I think we went to, I know we went to Dartmouth. Um, and I was super sick. People didn't know what was going on. I'm sure they did a ton of testing. Um, you know, there were times where people, you know, watched mom feeding me. They told uh, her at one point not to feed me because they, they were like, well, if that's what's making her sick. Um, it, it took a long time. And we went to Chicago at one point for some, some different stuff. Um, that might have actually been later in life after I was diagnosed. It all blends together. Um, but, but finally, we ended up uh, getting specialty care in Boston um, at a very famous children's hospital that is in Boston. And I believe that is where I was diagnosed. And I was about a year old when I was diagnosed. So it, it took a lot of time and a lot of testing and um, just a lot of figuring things out. And finally, when I was diagnosed, um, they, they sent me home um, with mom and dad on TPN with a central line. And um, I, was, I was a year old. And um, I don't, I don't know at what point this happened, um, but at one point, I think I was already diagnosed and home and a little bit older. But uh, at one point, I was throwing up so bad, I was actually throwing up my stomach into my esophagus, which is like not ideal. That's really gross. not ideal. It's super gross. Um, and so I actually had a procedure. Um, to prevent that from happening called endocin fund application. So now I actually don't throw up so things can go in but not come out, which is, I mean, I'm kind of a vomophobe anyway. So like that works. I didn't know that. Um, I didn't know you had that done. Yeah. It's, and, and I think it's interesting because I heard that you can like outgrow it or it like goes away. But since I haven't grown it probably is still good, I guess. I don't grow up. If I did, I would freak. So that's like a weird random tidbit. Um, but anyway, so we were home and, you know, even now, um, nobody gives you a manual when you have a baby anyway. Uh, you're just supposed to like figure it out, I guess. And so when you have a kiddo who has complex medical needs it's like a whole nother ocean to kind of navigate and now you know I think we're really fortunate where we have things like YouTube and Facebook and these different ways to access resources and communities but you know mom and dad were kind of on their own um, and eventually we um, got 
help, you know, they got support in the form of in-home nursing, um, which as many of you know, who have had to navigate systems or access services like that, first of all, it's, it can be very hard to access and I'm sure it's harder now than it was back then. Um, but it, it's a big step to ask for help anyway with something that, you know, society thinks you're supposed to understand on your own. Um, but also when you're letting someone into your home and and we'll talk a lot more about our experiences with nurses the good and the bad and the ugly um but at this point this was somebody who came into our home and really just helped us thrive and be able to live our lives the way that we wanted to and showed us that even though you're hooked up to an iv you know, you can go shopping, you can go camping, you can go to Disney World, um, you can do all these things. And um, that was Cindy, who just became such a part of our family. And, you know, she was the first person to ever take me, you know, for an overnight, so mom and dad could have time to, you know, have respite. Um, and she was what we consider uh, one of our, our champions. And Maisie and I will spend a lot of time talking about the many, many champions that we've had uh, in our life who have taught us the things that we know and given us the strength that we have. And she was just just so incredible. Um, and I know that mom's going to cry when she listens to I was just going to say, I know um, mom's going to cry during this part. Because yeah, I, I feel like she was a champion for mom too. You know what I mean? Like when you're handed this fragile infant with all of these complex medical needs, like I can't even like take care of myself half the time. And like she was, ha she had to take care of another human and figure out how to sterilely set up IV tubing and make sure like I, all of the baby stuff plus all of the tubing stuff. Like, so I, I feel like Cindy really just was like, you know what, you've got this, like, this is what you, this is how you do it, you know? And so like, I'm sure mom really needed that at that point in her life too. So she was like, you know, she was the rock for our family. I don't, I wasn't around for, much of I mean I was little when she was our nurse but like I feel like she really set the stage for like who this year family became you know so it's really totally. we're really fortunate that we had that and the other huge champion that we have to talk about is that Grammy lived with us our mom's mom oh I'm gonna get awful clumped during this oh this is our second episode um our Grammy lived with us for many, 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 many years, like our whole lives. And um, she helped us with so much. She helped mom. She made sure that mom took care of herself during all of this, um, as well as taking care of me. And I know that Maisie and I have so many Grammy stories, but she would cook dinner for our family every single night at the same time, 5.30 every night. And if we didn't come to dinner right away, she would say, soup's on. And if she didn't, if you didn't come, she would say, soup's getting cold. And um, we only, we thought we could only have like five things for dinner. Like we always, yeah. we had a very stringent routine. Yeah. Um, but we just had, we just had always so much love and just people who cared about us in our home and, you know, I think, and I know that as an adult, we, I took for granted um, 
all the natural supports that we had. And I'll talk more about that kind of in, in some of our different transition conversations, but these were really the pillars of um, how, how we just were able to, to get through this and how mom and dad were able to raise us the way they did. And like dad worked full time and, you know, mom worked sporadically, um, you know, when she was able to, and it was because of these other natural supports that were, that were able to take care of us and, and that we could truly trust. Um, you know, another story that I had kind of written down in our notes was, I can't remember when the, the Chicago piece came in. It might've been um, later in the game during the selenium thing, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but we were in Chicago um, for some medical testing and things like that and uh, staying at the Ronald McDonald house and Nana, who we will definitely talk more about probably in like every episode, um, we are from Maine, as we mentioned. So my, my Nana, my dad's mom, uh, flew to Chicago with lobsters for all the people that were staying there and all the staff of the Ronald McDonald House in Chicago and had a full Maine-style lobster bake, which is just so Nana and so extra. Like I was going to say, Nana, like, Nana was like the definition of extra. Like, always. She always. was so extra. Just to clarify, Nana is our dad's mom and Grammy was our mom's mom. So when you hear Nana yes. and Grammy, that's... And they were both very different, but both incredible, strong power women in their, in their own way. Um, and we are, we're so family oriented, so you'll hear much more about them. But I just think that story is such an example of how even during the toughest of times, our family has found ways to celebrate and have joy and build community and you know those those are the things that that have got us through so that's kind of like the very high level version because I don't know a lot of what happened because I was a baby um but yeah so after, so like you were in the hospital for a long time as a baby and then like, how did they finally decide like what they could send you home with to make sure you were stable? Like, I know obviously now, like what we have to do to make sure we like manage it, but I guess like, what was the process for them? Sorry, Kyle's cooking dinner. Um, what was the process for them? Like figuring out what that looked like? How did you guys you know, learn that? What did the day-to-day -day look like as a baby? Yeah. So again, I was a baby. Um, so it, it took a lot. It took a long time. Um, one thing, you know, I know they did was um, an exploratory surgery. I have a really big scar from like my, the bottom of my sternum to like below my belly button where they literally just like cut me open to like look at what was going on. And so with MID, what happens is in the digestion stages, you secrete like digestive fluids, like acid basically to break down the food. And like it, that usually gets reabsorbed. So with microbilis inclusion disease, 
the microvilli is the part that absorbs that secretion back into your intestine or stomach or wherever it goes. So ours doesn't do that. So when they did the exploratory surgery, this is super gross. So I'm sorry. And for people who are listening, like this is a gross disease. Like we make it look very classy. It's pretty gross. So if you're, if you don't like talking about poop, this is not the podcast for you. I'm just going to be fair. Right out to there. be fair, this will probably it's be not. the most we talk about poop of the, most the majority poop. of our episodes. Yes. <laughs> so, and again, I was a baby. So, um, but they took my intestine out of my body. And when they went to put it back in, it didn't fit. And they had to milk it to get the secretions out because it had secreted so much that did not get reabsorbed. I didn't so, know that. I didn't know any of this. Yeah. So super gross. That's um, so gross. So, yeah. So what happens with that, um, you know, in the body is that be- that the secretion leaves the body. Um, and so we go to the bathroom more than the average human um, and so, you know, we're at risk for, for dehydration because of that. Um, but yeah, so that was, they definitely got a, an eye opening, um, as to what was going on with my intestine. So, uh, they tried, I believe a bunch of like different formulas. I know we, once we were at home, we did like feeding therapy. Um, and I had, um, a G tube for a while, um, which is a tube that goes directly into your stomach. And so I had that for many years. And so we, we did different formulas and things through that. But ultimately, um, the treatment for MID is TPN, which is total parenteral nutrition. So it, is, it goes directly into your bloodstream. It's hydration with all the nutrients that you need and vitamins to be a person. So it's just... Um, you know, nutrition that that is infused in your veins. So here's mom and dad, you know, new parents, and they're being sent home with a baby who has this tube that can, you know, goes directly to her heart that can get very infected very easily. It can get pulled. It can, you know, all kinds of things can happen. And they are having to do these daily IV infusions at home, which means setting up the bag, we call it spiking the bag where you put the tubing in and you have to, you know, let the fluid run through the tubing and put the vitamins in. And and it's really, I mean, it's a process. Like when we lived at home, we had a whole closet that was just medical stuff. And, you know, we would have friends over and I mean, it looked pretty intense for, for people who weren't familiar with it. So you know, this is a, a huge responsibility um, that they're going home with and, and in the early, early phases of this medical treatment. So the, the prognosis was basically like, you know, she's probably not going to live past the age of two, go home, try this, give her a good life. Um, you know, and that was, that was what they did. Um, and they, they did that the best they could. And, you know, obviously they did a really good job because 35 years later, we're still, we're still hanging in. So, 
um, that, that was sort of what that looked like. And I'm sure there's, there's a ton more that, you know, I don't even know about. Um, I know there were some mixed experiences with the healthcare system. You know, there were times when it was sort of alluded to, I think I said a little bit earlier that like, they thought mom might be making me sick, which is a terrible thing to, to think that because doctors don't have an answer for why your baby's sick, that you have to, you know, even question those things. But that's kind of the, the world we live in. And, and then when it was, was finally diagnosed, um, they were just sent home to, to figure it out. And I think like I I told mom we have to have her on an episode at some point because she yeah. was there for all of this. Um, yeah. But I think like if she were to give parents advice, which she does like in our Facebook group and stuff like that, um, she was a fierce and is still a fierce advocate for us and for what she knows in her gut to be true. And I know that like she had to develop those skills and like how hard that must have been when like all of these medical professionals are telling you one thing and you just have to like, as like a 20 something, like, you know, go up against that system. Like that's just mind boggling to me. So kudos mom, you did good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely going to say we have to have her as a guest, just, I mean, for obvious reasons, we could talk about so many things. Yeah. So you remember her notebook? Yes. Oh my God. We had, so back in the early, early days, and I'm sure that parents of, of little MIDers still do things like this. Probably it's probably a Google doc now. Um, we had a notebook for years and years. I think we were teenagers when that went away. Um, but she, and then the nurses would document everything. It was like every, you know, in the medical world, input and output was documented and measured. We had check boxes for teeth brushing, dressing changes, notes for anything happening that day. If there was an antibiotic that we needed, like, and it lived in the same place in our house, I think until we moved. And I don't even know, mom could tell us how many notebooks there were and if she still has them yeah um and it was I don't even know we would write down phone numbers if somebody called it was like it was just like the home base for for our our care coordination really because at that time mom was it and I know even now we have all these you know care coordinators case managers all these things but let's be real I mean the the families coordinate the care and usually you're coordinating the care coordinators. So in our house, it was just, it was us, it was the nurses, it was mom and dad and Grammy and me. We had the notebook. That's so funny (laughs) that you remember that, Maze, because that's so, yeah, I can see it in my head. And then, so here's the thing. It used to be, I used to have my own page, okay? I was all one page. And then when Maisie came, the page, you can't see me. I'm like, drawing a line with my finger you had to the split page it was like split in half <laughs> and so because there wasn't room for two notebooks we just divided the page and so Maisie had a side and I had a side and we tracked all the things so That's that funny. was that was how we did did things back in the day it's really funny the things that like stand out in your memory <laughs> mm-hmm. totally and I think the other thing that 
we had talked about a little bit before this is that like, and I think we can talk about this more, but just knowing who is and who isn't a good fit. Like we, we will definitely get into like the nitty gritty of our home care nurses, but mom didn't let the ones that didn't fit stick around. She like, Mm -hmm. at least in my time and like I said before, we'll talk about this more in depth, but, um, we knew it was, it was like a job interview, basically. Like we knew if it, if they were going to be a good fit and she didn't let the ones who weren't stay. And I think that's really like bold of her, especially because like home health care can be so hard to get in the first place. And then for her to say like, nope, these, this person isn't going to work with my girls. Like that is, I think that's really brave and like for her to advocate to that degree like knowing that like they might just be like okay well then you don't get anyone <laughs> like that yeah. I've never really thought about that like as an adult but that's really and it, cool of her. it it comes back to too you know like the the medical the healthcare model is built on on a power dynamic where people come in and there are people doctors with certain degrees and certain experience where if you question them or say no I don't want to do something it's it's frowned upon and so advocating is is very very hard and this will be a common theme throughout all of our discussions about our journeys advocating as adults about you know making those decisions of who you want in your home, who you want in your healthcare. And people need to know they have that option. You know, I know you and I, Maisie, have talked to a lot of people, you know, of all ages through social media, through conferences, and and really shared that. And especially people who are new to the healthcare system, it can feel very intimidating to say, wait a minute, I don't think that's right. Or I don't, I don't trust in my, in my body that that's what's going on. Um, because the medical world is very intimidating and you're, you're meant to feel inferior. And so you're totally right. Like for mom to stand up the way that she did so many times at such a young age in a time, especially, you know, I think we're slowly, well, I personally feel like we're going back in time with healthcare, but there are efforts to be more progressive to honor lived experience for those with complex medical needs. But for the most part, it's like you go to the doctor, what they say goes. And, you know, even things like getting a second opinion is very controversial. Mm-hmm. So you're totally right. Yeah. Especially like, especially for women, we don't, we are even less listened to and it's so gaslighty, you know, they're like, Oh, it's in your head. And yeah. I'm sure like, I'm sure mom went through that too. Like she might not even remember because, you know, coping mechanisms, but, um, but yeah, I'm sure she, I'm sure she was up against all of that. So. Well, and, and we'll, we'll get to when you came along and when we wanted you to come along and how our, how our medical, um, world reacted to that. But, um, so fast, fast forwarding so we can get to, that part. Um, the other piece of my health stuff. Um, so it's, it's interesting because my physical 
being has been impacted in a way that yours has not. So for those who don't know me, I'm only three foot nine. My height is stunted. Um, and that most people think that I have dwarfism or, you know, something like that. And that's my quote unquote health condition, but it's secondary to my microbilis inclusion disease. And this is something that only recently I have started to talk about openly because again, it's, it's controversial um, to talk about things that maybe did not go well in your healthcare. And so basically what happened was um, I was about four or five and we had moved to Maine. We had just moved to Maine um, to be closer to Nana and Papa, uh, who are dad's parents. And I was having severe, severe, severe bone pain, leg pain, um, and also other weird symptoms. My hair and my fingernails were turning white. Um, there was like weird neurological stuff that I don't know a ton about. Um, but just all kinds of things that were that were weird were happening. And I, I do remember um, severe pain. And um, my, my legs were growing like towards each other. Like my knees were touching and I have like pictures of like playing t-ball and doing trying to do dance but I could barely walk so long story short and again I don't know what testing we did I don't know how this was figured out um again mom can probably weigh in on that piece basically what we discovered is for the time that I had been on TPN I was not getting selenium so selenium is a key element nutrient something you need to grow right. So I wasn't getting that. Um, and I don't know how we found out. I don't know what happened behind the scenes. Um, but it was, it was just left out. And so, you know, that's a, that's a big, that's a big boo-boo to make. Um, and luckily for me, um, once we found that out, obviously it was, you know, added or whatever. Um, and a lot of those symptoms corrected themselves. So um, most things went back to normal. But after that point, my growth plates had dissolved. So my legs were growing, the way they were growing was just incorrectly, which is why they were touching. So I had um, surgery at that point to fuse my growth plates so they wouldn't grow anymore. And just part of the aftermath of the selenium deficiency is that I just didn't grow. Um, so that's something that I don't really talk about, but I've started to talk about it because there is now a selenium shortage, IV selenium shortage. Um, and basically what's happening is big pharma has reformulated selenium in a way that if it were to be transported to consumers or to pharmacies, it's not shelf stable. Um, like it's not shelf stable long enough to put into TPN, I guess, is my understanding. And um, they also, the kind that is, they have basically priced consumers out. So I have been doing some work recently um, advocating for the selenium shortage because 
I am sort of an example of what happens if you don't get selenium. And I'm very, very fortunate that it was resolved and that I was okay aside from my height impairment, um, which obviously has created many challenges, you know, navigating the world. Um, but again, I'm just like super, super grateful that we did um, get things back on track and that we caught it. And, you know, it, it's controversial, right? So like, we don't know what happened. I don't know. Um, but the hard thing is we didn't really pursue anything in terms of what happened because A, we were tired. Like mom and dad, I mean, this is, this is exhausting. This is a full-time job, just like staying alive. And you get to the point, and I know you can relate to this, Maisie, like you pick your battles. You know, I have people tell me all the time, well, you should write a letter, you should call, and you should complain, and you should sue, and you should do, and I'm like, I'm just trying to get through my day. Like, you know, we, we got back on track, we got it resolved. Um, and the other thing is that comes back to sort of the power dynamic of these were the only providers in the country who could treat this disease. Like we couldn't burn those bridges. And again, like we don't, we don't know what, I don't know what happened. You know, people make mistakes. Um, this was early on in, in the treatment days. MID was very, very rare. I think there was one other girl and one other family that we knew of when I was younger. There was one girl who was at my hospital who was treated by this same team and she passed away when I was pretty young. Um, so at, at this point in time, to my knowledge, I'm actually the oldest living person with MID, at least in America, and at least that I'm aware of, who has not had any type of transplant. Um, so that's kind of wild. So that's a little bit of the, the physical um, repercussions that are secondary to MID that most people don't know is tied to that. Yeah, that's crazy. I think, you know, what's funny is like, I bet there are a lot of people within our lives, but that don't necessarily know the whole story who are like, why is she short? I want to know why she's short. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure. There you I'm go. Sure. Yeah. So, and, and people, I mean, people just make things up and I'm like, no, it's not, you know, and that's to the identity piece, you know, it's a little bit why I've never really identified as like having a like physical disability because it's always been tied to my chronic illness. And we, you know, come from like the chronic illness land and now it's sort of like a Venn diagram of like a disability and chronic illness. But because my physical limitations are because of my chronic illness, it's sort of like, I don't know, I guess it's subjective, but that's just sort of my, my personal, you know, how I identify. Yeah. And a lot of people ask like, oh, so do you have the same thing? And no, I'm just short. <laughs> yeah, literally. So. so thank you for uh, paving the way on that one. I think I thanked you in our last episode and I probably will in future ones, but much appreciated. Yes. Well, and that's, you know, so, so when Maisie uh, was diagnosed, you know, we were very much on the selenium watch of like, 
you know, if she's going to be on TPN, make sure there's selenium, make sure there's selenium, make sure there's selenium, make sure there's selenium. So they did. And so that's why, you know, Maisie is of average height and has had, you know, I think there are a lot of different variables in terms of like our different MID journey, but physically and because of that, um, that's one sort of barrier we were able to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk more about, you know, our different actual journeys. So as you got a little bit older, how did your community like respond? Like this is such a rare thing. And like, I'm sure it was super overwhelming for mom and dad, like we talked about. And I know um, when you were younger, the community really like came together to like support our family. So like, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So when we moved to Maine, we lived in a very small town. And because I think, obviously, partly because it was very small, people really quickly learned who I was. Um, and we'll talk specifically about the education journey in future episodes. But um, one thing I, I want to talk about in, in this episode is that that sense of community. And one thing was when I was in school, I, I told my story as many times as possible. Like for the first like time I was in kindergarten, mom was actually, they're now called paraprofessionals, but mom was my, my one-on-one aide. Um, and always in school, I would give sort of like a presentation um, about my disease just to explain, you know, if I didn't eat at lunch or if I was out or different things, you know, or if somebody saw my tubing through my shirt or, you know, different things. And I actually had a cabbage patch um, that had a G-tube and a central line sewn in. So I would bring that in and say like, this is what I have. This is what's under my shirt, you know, so I didn't have to do the whole like whipping up my shirt in my classroom because privacy. And so that was a big piece of it. And I did that throughout school into high school. And what that did was it, it gave the, the correct, the accurate information. And as I got older, I shared different levels of information, like, and I tied it back to sort of what was age appropriate. I also think it's important to mention our mother has a degree in education and like child development. So we were always teaching, like we were always willing to teach. And what we learned is that in teaching, we were, we were building those bridges. And if people don't have the correct information, what do they do? They make it up. They make it up. Yeah. So in sharing the correct information, we were creating that support system. And I remember years in like elementary or middle school, we're like, new kids would like come in and like start to like make fun of me and like my classmates would just like shut it down and they'd be like nope that's Mallory here's what's going on da 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 and so it was just my class was so so close and I had the same classmates literally through kindergarten to senior year so I think when you have that small town and that community like it just was so it was so amazing. And I know that my experience was super rare. Um, and, and one, one big community event that really pulled people together. Um, when I was 
around eight. I was in second grade and my legs were really, really bad and I couldn't walk. I was in a wheelchair. We tried braces. They used to pinch my legs. It just was not working out. So we went to Boston um, where I saw an amazing orthopedic surgeon, like one of the best providers I've had to date. Um, And I was going to have a big leg surgery. Basically what they were gonna do was cut my legs, mind you I'm eight, um, cut the bone in my leg, like, you know, knee or femur, yeah, my femurs. which is the big thigh bone for those of you who are not biology nerds. Um, They were going to cut my femurs, straighten them and put external fixators, which are basically giant metal rods. Like I, you kind of all know, like they're like the metal rods. There's like two, there were two pins in my knee and two pins in like my upper thigh. And this is very, very triggering just so y'all know, because it was like the worst experience of my life. Um, but so they were going to do that and I was going to have to be in a wheelchair for like three months cause I couldn't bear weight on them. And during this time, my mom was pregnant with Maisie cause I had said many, many times growing up, I would like a baby sister, please. So finally, when I was eight, um, my parents were like, okay. Um, but ultimately when Maisie came along, um, knowing that our condition is genetic, my family, and I say my family, my, my mom really got the brunt of it, obviously, because she's the woman, um, got a lot of pushback from the medical community because they knew that we were accepting the risk that Maisie may have this illness too. And we actually had people on my core healthcare team, my specialists, um, just stop speaking to us because they didn't agree with our decision. And that's really gross and um, patriarchal and yucky. And um, it really frustrates me because, you know, Maisie and I both have developed into pretty decent humans who have focused our careers on bettering the world for other people with illnesses and just those around us. And, you know, for him to say that we couldn't bring another person into the world is pretty, uh, pretty nasty on a lot of levels. So that's another story that, you know, I share pretty openly because I'm very involved in the genetics community. Um, and I share that story. And now I know there are a lot of different genetic technologies and things that I have all kinds of mixed feelings about. But at the time, that was our experience um, back in the 90s. So um, my mom was pregnant with Maisie. My dad had actually been laid off from his job. And so our family was uh, struggling and I needed the surgery. And um, I was going back and forth. We were going back and forth to Boston we needed a wheelchair accessible van. I needed a hospital bed because I couldn't, um, I needed to be able to, you know, put my head up and down, all kinds of, it it was a huge ordeal. So during this time, our community came together and created a group called Mal's Pals. And I still have some of the buttons. I think I gave the last one to my former boss who called me Mal Pal, which I thought was really sweet. 
Um, and they had a ton of events. They did a bullathon, they did a gala, they did a um, carnival, they had a spaghetti supper, all kinds of things. And I actually have um, like a scrapbook from all the events that they did and, and the news articles. And, and this was led um, by, I should probably mention, another one of our champions who became my paraprofessional or my one-on-one -on -one aide after my mother. Um, her name is Bonnie. And she, I hope she listens to this. We're Facebook friends and she lives in Colorado now, which is crazy. Um, but she spearheaded this with all of my classmates and all of the teachers and parents. And it was just, it was, it was wild. And so one of the craziest things, which is like, you're going to listen to these. And I swear there are people that think I'm a pathological liar because our life is so random, so random. And I tell this story um, whenever I'm at a bar and Michael Jackson comes on the radio and people are like, yo, okay. Um, but a second grader at the time, she might've been a grade ahead of me or a couple grades ahead of me said as one of the fundraising endeavors, what if we all wrote letters to Michael Jackson? And you know, this little fourth grader, the, the parents and teachers are like, okay, sweetie, that's a, that's a cute idea. You're adorable. And she was like, no, really? And they're like, okay. So all these kids wrote letters to Michael Jackson and I had no idea how many best friends I had, but all these people said, this, there's this girl, Mallory, she's my best friend. And it was super cute. So long story short, Michael Jackson wrote back and sent our family money to help us in that rough time. And he was supposed to call me on the telephone, but this was when a lot of his conspiracies and controversies broke out. Um, so wherever you stand on that, totally fine. I'm an MJ fan because of my personal experience. Um, and so, so that's a weird random thing that happened in our life. And fast forward to after Michael Jackson passed away, the news called me and I'm in my apartment and I pick up the phone and they're like, Hey, it's just Mallory Sear. And I was like, yeah. And they literally asked if I had any comments or anything about the situation. And I was like, look, all I know is he was good to me. And I'm sure he was very misunderstood. There was a lot we don't know. I think it's very disrespectful to be calling me right now. Have a nice day. So if you Google my name and Michael Jackson, my name is in a bunch of articles and books. I actually, one of the books I wrote a chapter for. Um, so I was able to actually tell my story about him. But the other ones, I have literally no idea. They just found my name on his like philanthropic efforts. So if you see an article about a Mallory Sear from Sabattis, Maine and Michael Jackson, it's me. It's actually literally me. So that's another weird um, random thing. But it was something magical that our community made happen. And because of all of those efforts and our community really coming together, I was able to get my surgery. We were able to get everything I needed to recover. It was the most difficult, most painful thing I've ever experienced. I have a very high pain tolerance now um, because of that, but also because of that, I am able to 
walk and I mean, I still have like some mobility limitations. Like I can't walk very far. I get pain and, um, you know, things like that, but I can walk, I can, you know, ambulate independently as they say, uh, in the system. So it was definitely worth it. And shortly after that, I can't remember if I still had my pins and I think they were out. Yeah. They had just, just come out when Maisie was born. Cause I remember in the pictures, my scars are like super freshy fresh. Uh, so that was, I mean, that was what led up to, that was the family adventure before we welcomed Maisie in 1993. That's wild. Like I still forget that, like, I know that was before Maisie, that was, that was BM time. (laughs) Before Maisie. Before Maisie. But that is so wild to me that that, yeah. like so random there's other so like random. no there's other stuff that we're gonna talk about later that yeah. people are just gonna be like nah I call bull like no but I also think it's very funny it's gonna be really interesting when we dig into education and the response of our classmates to our presentations yeah. and whatnot because very 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 different, very different. So what else do you want to know? Because that's, I mean, that's really getting up to speed. Um, So, you know, this is, that's where it was. I had my big leg surgery. I'm still on TPN at this point. I still had my G-tube, had a central line, had nurses that we'll talk more about. And just kicking it in Maine. Yeah. So I think our next episode, which we're going to try to roll out shortly after this one, um, is going to be about my grand entrance into the world. Um, And then I think we can start digging into um, education, employment, hobbies, all of those um, fun things. So thank you for listening as we sort of lay the groundwork for what is to come. There's a motorcycle outside. Sorry, you guys. That's what happens when you do podcasts in a 700-square-foot apartment. Um, But yeah, so feel free to, as always, message us or leave a comment with, you know, any questions that you have or anything else that you would like us to talk about. And we will definitely try to get to those as we get into a groove. Um, Things are a little bit crazy with us trying to get back to work and me going to grad school and run program um, and everything like that. So thank you so much for bearing with us. Um, And we'll try to get this uh, and our next episode out to you soon. Yeah. Thanks so much. And thanks for being flexible. We're trying to get these out pretty regularly, but we both work full time and are involved in a bunch of stuff. But if you want to keep up with us, uh, our social media, our Instagrams are in our bio. Uh, Maisie can be found at the underscore Maisinator. And my Instagram is Curb Cuts and Cocktails. Thanks so much. We're so excited to dig into all of this. And it's really great to be able to share our experiences together. This is something we've never had an opportunity to do. So thanks for listening and stay tuned.